And so now, Lord, we ask that as we look into your written word, Holy Scripture, would you shine the light of your love, even upon these pages, um, would you shine the light of your love into even our dark hearts? And would you shine the light of your love to those around us uh, whose lives we share, um, to those who we know well, um, and to those who we don't know well yet? Lord, would you let us be a light to them, a light pointing to you? So we ask this for your glory's sake, and in Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin at the beginning, we're looking at, um, I'm looking at an overview, and I'm asking the question, first of all, who is Luke? Well, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and um, we're reasonably certain about this because of the internal evidence within scripture, and because of the external evidence within church history. So when you look at scripture itself, we hear Paul, who wrote Colossians, and he wrote Philemon, and he wrote Second Timothy, all of which I put on your sheet. In each one of those verses, he, he talks about Luke. He mentions Luke, and in Colossians, he calls Luke the beloved physician. That's how we learn that Luke is a well-educated Greek man, a Greek-speaking man. He might be Jewish, he might be Greek. A lot of scholars think he's a Gentile. We're not really sure. Um, but he's very fluent in ancient Greek, which is for a lot of the Jewish Christians and a lot of the um, followers of Jesus, especially the 12 apostles, it's likely that Greek was a second language for them and not their first language. And if any of you have taken a language before, you know that um, when two people who don't speak the same first language are talking to each other in that secondary language, things get very basic. So if I were, were, I don't know, does anybody speak French in here? Okay. Comment allez-vous? Très bien. Yeah, see, exactly. You and I, we can say, how are you doing? Very well. But that might be about all we can say. <laughs> you know, our grammar might be yeah. very basic. <laughs> our vocabulary might be very Je basic. Je m'appelle Catherine. <laughs> Je m'appelle des <laughs> But so it allows us to converse together because you and I probably both don't share a more complex grammar and a more complex vocabulary that we do in English. In English, we can talk about all sorts of things. But if we're speaking in French, we might be more basic. And so what you see is that some, uh, a lot of the writers of the Greek New Testament, so um, Matthew, Mark especially is one of them, even John, and then Paul. Paul is very well educated, we know. But some of those others, their Greek is more basic and they're speaking to people whose Greek may be more basic as well. And so it's, it doesn't get as complicated. But if anyone, if I, any of one of you were to learn Greek and to start to read Luke, you'd be like, it is hard to, tra- it's much harder to translate for someone whose language is not Greek. And so in that translation, that's how we put on our little magnifying glass and we can say, well, Luke is more edu- well educated than some of the other New Testament writers. His language is more complex. He's speaking in a more complex way because he's able to. Um, So that's one of those little clues. One of the things I've said in this class is that um, about one of my my heroes from long ago, from girlhood, um, is Nancy Drew. Did any of you ever read Nancy Drew's books? I was sort of obsessed, and I managed to read every single one of the Nancy Drew mystery novels that were available to me. There was one that I missed, and I couldn't find it, and I literally tracked it down. As like a a, a nine-year-old, I went to all of these different 
um, libraries in my area in Pennsylvania to be able to find the missing Nancy Drew novel. <laughs> and I think I was showing myself to be a little bit of a detective right there, a little bit of um, perseverance, of stubbornness, and of inquisitiveness. And so, of course, imagine my delight when I realized as I grew older that, um, that, they, that Nancy Drew, does anybody remember what color hair they always said she has? They say, they, well, the word that Caroline Keene, who's actually named, which is weird, was used for her hair was Titian. And I don't think I have quite Titian hair, but the paintings, it was always like, is it red? Is it blonde? We don't know. It shifts back and forth. And so as an adult, do you know, I, I was so pleased in my 20s when I realized, oh my gosh, I think I might have Nancy Drew. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I really identify with this person. She is one of my girlhood heroes. And often when I approach scripture, I want to know. I want to ask questions about it. I want to ask who, what, where, when, why. And in some ways, I feel like I'm impersonating Nancy Drew. I want to get out my magnifying glass, you know, really get into my maybe red, maybe blonde hair. I want to look at it, and I want to ask questions and see what we can dig up, solve the mystery. What is really going on in these, in these words, in these passages? What is God saying to us? through it. So one of those things, I say that because, um, because it's important to know who wrote it, who done it, who wrote Acts. Well, we know that it's likely to be Luke, the beloved physician, um, who was a companion of St. Paul on his missionary journeys, and especially on the journeys that he went on towards the end of the book of Acts, as he was imprisoned and he was carried away to Rome. We're going to look at that next spring in more depth. Um, but suffice it to say that the internal evidence and the external evidence of church tradition would suggest that Luke is in fact the, the author of um, both the Gospel according to St. Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. So what that means is that, um, that the Acts of the Apostles is actually volume two of two, which is a funny thing. We don't think about that. If you think about the New Testament, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we get Acts, and then we go into Paul's letters, all of St. Paul's letters, and then we go into letters written by other people, and then we go into Revelation. So where does Acts fit into that whole um, canon of the New Testament scripture? Well, Acts kind of stands alone, doesn't it? Because it is historical, it is a narrative, there is theological content, but it, it, it tells us more of a chronology of events during the early church, after Jesus' ascension, after his death and resurrection, which we hear about in the Gospel of Luke, and then what happens when Jesus ascends into heaven, and, and how does God still maintain his work in the world in Jesus' bodily absence? So that's what we see in the book of Acts. Well, so if it's part two of two, if there's a two-volume work, you very often will find the purpose of a two-volume work written at the prologue to the first volume. Does that make sense? So if we were to look back to Luke chapter 1, we'd find that Luke chapter 1 puts us, um, tells us why Luke is writing, and it also tells us some bits about the purpose of Scripture. Why Scripture? Why um, do we read Scripture? Why was Scripture written? Why did Luke write Scripture? And that's an important question to ask because when you look at the New Testament writers, they are so familiar with the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what, because what we call the Old Testament, that was their Bible. And they didn't have a Bible written down like we do. 
um, because it was too expensive to have paper in that day and age, and not everyone knew how to write. Um, so what they did was they would read aloud the Old Testament scripture in the synagogues where they worshipped. And as they read aloud scripture, they would also learn it by heart and memorize it. So that's one thing to remember about that day and age that's so different from us. How many of you have a cell phone? Yeah, we all do, I know. I don't think we're going back at this point. Um, But how many of you, before you had a cell phone, remember what it was like to try to call people when you were on the go or when you were traveling? I had um, my parents at one point got a 1-800 number so that their number was always a toll-free number for (laughs) each one of the four of us children so that if we were in trouble, we could call for free. They wanted us to always call them, and so they made it free for us to call them wherever we were, which was pretty clever with four teenagers. But, um, but before having a cell phone, I had about ten numbers that I had memorized in my head. certainly had the 1-800 number that I memorized, but I had all of these other numbers. And do you know right now, I have trouble remembering my own number. <laughs> and I think it's because it's programmed into my phone. Everything is written down and programmed for me, and so my own memory is not as strong as it used to have to be. And that's something to remember for us. We have a hard time thinking, well, how could people have memorized all of the Old Testament or significant portions of the Old Testament? Well, they, they did it all the time. They, it was like an exercise program. They were running 10 miles a day, or their memories were running the equivalent of 10 miles a day. So it was much easier for them to run uh, to, to memorize what they were hearing, and they were learning it. Learning involved memorizing memorizing their scriptures. And so it comes to the forefront of their minds um, when the New Testament writers are writing um, the letters of the New Testament and the Gospels of the New Testament. And not only that, but we think it seems as though Luke and Paul and Matthew and Mark and John and all of these writers were writing with this conscious sense that they were writing scripture. They had a very clear sense it appears as though they knew that, um, that all of what had gone before in their scriptures in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament was um, looking forward to the point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. They had this sense in which all of what had gone before was, um, was hastening to the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so um, when they're writing, it's almost as though they know that they're writing new scripture. They have that sense of awareness about that, which is really amazing. So with that in mind, let's read. I'm just going to read to you. When we read from Acts, we'll all get a chance to read. I'm just going to read the first four verses in Luke's Gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Right there, Luke is saying why he's writing. He's saying why he's writing Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, and he's also, that applies to Acts as well. Why is he writing Acts? And a couple of different things about this. He talks about five different stages of scripture. He talks about the events that have, the things that have been accomplished among us in verse 1. Those things that have been accomplished among us, well, those are actually, what he's saying about that is that those are actually 
historical events. And um, for us today, we look at the events in Scripture and we gain so much meaning. They're so encouraging to us. And we go to Scripture to be encouraged to remember these things. But sometimes because they are theological and devotional for us, we forget they actually happened within human history. And that is something that um, Luca is saying. And it's something so encouraging, too, that um, what is meaningful to us emotionally is um, not just a subjective truth, something that makes us feel good, that we say, yeah, that's right, thank you, God, that's right. But it's also empirically true. It's true objectively because it happened within the timeline of human history. So Luke is saying this, the events uh, that scripture um, contains within it, historical events that are fulfilled among us. The other thing that I draw your attention to about this stage in the compiling of scripture is that uh, Luke is saying uh, in verse 2, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered these events to us. So what we see, we see a couple things in that, but what, what that says to us is that, um, uh, that not only does scripture discuss historical events, but scripture is conveyed by eyewitnesses to those events. Because we're reasonably certain that Luke himself was not there during Jesus' earthly ministry. And even in the book of Acts, he doesn't start saying we, and he does say we, about him and Paul and Paul's other companions. He starts saying we, but he doesn't start saying that until Acts 16. We know that he is relying on the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of other people who were there from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Even if you look at the book of Luke, um, the gospel according to St. Luke, in the beginning, that's where we get all of our Christmas passages, isn't it? The annunciation of the visitation of the angel Gabriel to Mary. How would he have known about that? Well, Mary was still alive. He went and talked to Mary. Only she could have told that story of what happened. And that's something, it gives me chills just thinking about it, just picturing Luke um, interviewing and asking, at this point perhaps, an elderly Mary. So what did happen? How did you know that you were going to give birth to the baby Jesus. How did you know that? And then hearing her tell about it. Um, it's, I get chills talking about that, but, um, but there were eyewitnesses. And so Luke has recorded what, he's been, what has been passed down to him from the eyewitnesses who were there. Um, and so then not only is he recording what the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word have delivered to him in verse 2, but he also... He's doing his own careful investigation. And this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, those three things are reasons why we can trust Holy Scripture. Luke says in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. He's been following things. He's been examining things. He was his own Nancy Drew. Maybe we should call him 
Matlock or Columbo instead. But he has done his own investigation in the years between um, since he came to faith and since he actually wrote. Um, between that time, he is digging up stuff. He is trying to find out what happened and how can I put it all together so that someone who has not yet heard about it will understand what happened. So that's part three. And then part four, he says he wrote an orderly account. It seemed good to him in verse three to write an orderly account. He is organizing. He, um, he knows the events are historical. He has interviewed eyewitnesses and heard tell from eyewitnesses. He's, he's investigated what the eyewitnesses said and done some careful um, checking of his facts there. And then his goal is to write an orderly account. His goal is to hand us the story of Jesus and the story of the early church on a platter so that we can just enjoy it, so we can dig in and receive through it. Um, and then the final part of Scripture that is so important to us is that um, Scripture is for us. Theophilus was probably a real person, but there's something really neat about what his name means in Greek. His name means friend of God or dear to God. And so when we're reading the gospel according to St. Luke, when we're reading the Acts of the Apostles, we are putting ourselves in the position of Theophilus for whom they were first written. Luke was writing them for this first person named Theophilus. He is also writing these gospels for all of us who over his head were peering in. We're getting to read and hear what Luke was first writing to Theophilus because Luke knew that he was writing scripture, not just for this one person, but for Christians throughout time and space. And so why is he writing it? Well, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He is writing so that Theophilus may have certainty, but he's also writing so that we too may have certainty concerning our faith. Why do we believe? Well, we go back to Scripture. It's God who creates faith within us, but when we study Scripture, our faith is strengthened. When we study Scripture, we're given nourishment spiritually to continue to believe, um, to walk out our faith. There's a verse in, um, in one of Paul's letters, 2 Timothy. You don't have to turn to it if you don't mind me just reading it. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16. And St. Paul in this verse is advising the young Timothy. And he's saying, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be competent, equipped, for every good work. So that's why we do Bible study. Why, why are we even here today? Well, we're hungry. We have faith, but that faith, um, God desires to nourish that faith in us. And by studying his holy word, his written word, by putting ourselves within the story of scripture, by um, causing the stories of our life to line up against scripture and looking at both of them and saying, wow, Lord, you bought and redeemed me just as you um, found Paul on the road to Damascus and you converted him. You broke through in the midst of his darkness and you shone the light of your love and he was transformed by it. So too with me. You've done that. Thank you, Lord. So as we read scripture, we continue to see our lives intersect. Our lives are in continuity 
with the lives of these great saints, with the lives of those first apostles of Jesus Christ. So any questions about that before we start to dig into Acts itself? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and I think I also did verse 17. There is a slave that's made free in the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah. It's not Theophilus. No, no, it's probably not. Theophilus is... Um, Oh, are you talking about are you talking about Paul's companion um, Onesimus in Philemon? Yeah. Oh, here, hey, you're so famous. Well, on- <laughs> Onesimus Onesimus was made free, but it's a different name, and it's likely to be a different. In in the ancient days, their names meant something about them. Onesimus's name means useful. It's a, it's it's a servant's name. Mm-hmm. Useful. Mm-hmm. Theophilus. That's an upper middle class name. That's a well-educated man's name. So, and that we also think in Luke's gospel, he doesn't say it in Acts. We're going to read the introduction to Acts right now. In Acts, he just calls him Theophilus, but in Luke, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. And when we're going to see in the book of Acts, um, Paul goes before all these Roman officials, and when he goes before the Roman officials, do you know what he says? Most excellent Felix. Most excellent Festus. He's honoring them because they have a higher status than him. might be that this Theophilus is a, a Gentile of high standing within. Mm-hmm. But we don't know for sure. We, we don't hear the name Theophilus anywhere else other than in Luke and Acts. Any other questions before we look at Acts? Okay, I've got 25 minutes. <laughs> We're going to do a whole chapter of Scripture in 25 minutes, believe it or not. And we're going to look... Um, First of all, I'm going to do just two minutes about where are we? What context are we in? Because remember, if we start, if it's two volumes and we started with volume one with the gospel according to St. Luke, well, it would figure, wouldn't it, that there's a transition between volume one and volume two. How many of you were taught to write by writing transitions in your paragraphs? I had many hours of tearing my hair out in high school and in college. Thank goodness my mother wasn't there in high college but in high school she literally would sit at me at the dining room table for hours while I procrastinated on writing stuff maybe those of you with children now do the same for your children God bless you for it but there is this sense of you have to explain everything and you have to repeat things and there's an overlapping in the communication well there's an overlap in Luke's communication between um, the gospel according to St. Luke and the Acts of the Apostles and so of course you'd find it at the end of Luke's gospel wouldn't you So we go to the end of Luke's gospel, to Luke chapter 24. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's been appearing to his disciples all over the place, which is great. And then at chapter 24, verse 50, it says, Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. As we read the introduction to Acts, we're going to see that um, Luke, and you can, I'll say it now and you can listen for it when we read it in a moment, Luke in volume 1 is talking about all of what Jesus began to do and say. And the implication is that Acts, then contains 
what Jesus continued to do and say, which is baffling because we think, well, Luke, Jesus ascended into heaven. How is it Jesus still at work in the book of Acts? Well, Luke is making the point, and this is one of our big picture themes that I'll highlight for you all year, which is that um, all of what God does through those first apostles in the Acts of the Apostles is actually Jesus Christ himself at work in the midst of the body of Christ. They are the Acts of the Apostles indeed, but it is the work of Jesus Christ. And that's a really neat thing to think about. How is Jesus Christ still at work? And what is the transition between these two volumes of work? So again, volume one is Jesus' um, work, all that he began to do and say. Um, and what he began to do and say happened while Jesus was still bodily present on earth. So then volume two is all that Jesus began to do and say in his bodily absence from earth. Because, and so it would make sense then that the transition between volume one and volume two is Jesus's ascension. This is one of those, if you look in our church, there is a window um, up on, right by the DeBartolaben passageway. And it has, in the very center, it has that beautiful crucifixion. It's um, so moving, so worshipful. And then on one side, it has his resurrection. On the other side, it has his, his ascension. And one of the funny things about all depictions of Jesus' ascension, if you think about it, it's a really tough thing to show in art. I went to a church in Pittsburgh. My church in Pittsburgh was called Church of the Ascension. And at Church of the Ascension, you know how we have that beautiful painting of the Last Supper behind our altar. Well, at Church of the Ascension, it was a beautiful 19th century painting of the Ascension. Of course, that makes sense. But it was really hard to see what was going on. It didn't, you couldn't tell if Jesus was coming or going. <laughs> like if you didn't know about what the Ascension was, you'd say, well, what is going on? Is he coming or going? I don't know. <laughs> he is lifted up. He's on a cloud. He's not standing on anything. It's baffling. It seems weird. And when we're going to read it, we're going to see that the disciples themselves didn't really know what to make about it. They thought that Jesus was going to establish a physical kingdom on earth. And then up, up, and away he goes. And they stand there looking into heaven saying, wait, wait a second, what's going on here? And the angels have to come to them and say, stop, stop, stop gazing at the sky. Jesus will come back, but for now, what he's going to do, between the time of Jesus' going and his return, he's going to give you what he promised. Does anybody know what the promised gift of God is that Jesus imparts to his disciples following his ascension? It's what we're going to look at next week. The Holy Spirit, that's right, Carol. Jesus is going to give to his disciples the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is... Um, the third member of the Trinity, right? And it is also the way that Jesus is going to continue to be at work on earth in his bodily absence. He is going to continue to work in and through his church and through his um, followers, he's going to work in the world. Through us, he works in the world. And we're going to see how through those first apostles, he works in the world. So the transition, of course, is up, up, and away. Jesus is um, ascension, and I refer to you to if you if you were able to attend um, church around Ascension Sunday this past year. Uh, Joe Gibbs preached a great sermon on the Ascension. It's a really tough thing to preach on, so I'm just going to redo his image about the Ascension. Uh, does anybody remember what he likened the Ascension to? A bottle rocket. On Earth, it's contained, right? 
And then it shoots up into the sky, and it explodes, and it's everywhere. Well, this is one of the things. This is why in John's Gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, greater works than these you will do. Greater works than the works of Jesus in the flesh will you do. And part of that is because when Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit descends, then the Holy Spirit is um, living in us. We can go so many more places than just one physical man can go. We do see Jesus after his resurrection bopping around Palestine. He's got way more capability than he did in his non-unraised body. But still, there are so many more of us. And that's part of God's purposes for the world is that there would be little, little, um, little Christ, little men and women formed, transformed into Christ-likeness through faith in him, through the power of his death and resurrection. Um, and that transformation causes us to do things we never would do on our own, right? Once you follow Jesus, hold on, because it's a wild ride. Suddenly you're saying, wow, I, that doesn't seem to be a problem for me, swearing. Actually, maybe swearing is still a problem for me and speeding. But other things are not, and they used to be. They definitely used to be. And it's amazing to look back and say, well, I didn't try to stop doing that, but somehow, Lord, you just changed me. You, Lord Jesus, changed me by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that God delights to do. It's not something we control, but it's something that he does. And so greater works will you do, Jesus says to his first disciples and to us today. And it's that bottle rocket. Jesus goes up, up, and away, and kaboom. The Holy Spirit descends in Jesus' bodily absence. Um, And we don't know why can't the Holy Spirit be on earth at the same time as Jesus. I'm not sure. We don't know exactly. But yet there's something about Jesus' coming that allows the Holy Spirit to be on earth at work in the lives of um, human beings everywhere in a way that's not possible prior to Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. We'll talk about that some more next week. Okay, let's read. We are going to read all of Acts chapter 1. And so what I like to do is, um, I'm the kid in school who always wanted to read. Ooh, 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 me, teacher, teacher. But what I'm going to ask you to do, everyone, I want to give as many people as want to read an opportunity to read. We're going to have different translations, and that's okay. There's something to be gained from hearing different translations. Um, So I'm going to start us off. I'm going to read maybe two, maybe three verses. And then I'm going to pass the baton. I won't actually pass the baton. If you feel led, just go ahead and read two or so verses. But remember that other people will probably want to read. So beginning at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Shall be my witnesses, 
both in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remote parts of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room <coughs> where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brethren, the company of persons, was in all about a hundred and twenty, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. When the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was God to those who arrested Jesus. When he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry, <coughs> And this man called Peter with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels filled down. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their language a Keldama, that is, the field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms. That is, habitation become desolate and let there be no one to live in it and his office let another take. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. When they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Great. Thank you. It's a long passage, isn't it? This is how it's going to be all year, I'm sorry, in advance. Um, but there's not so much that we need to parse out every verse. But if you have questions when I'm done, feel free to ask. But one of the things, and you might get frustrated with me, but sometimes I go about my outline in a different order. Um, we looked already at some of the prologue. Do you hear it again when we read it? Did you hear again the things that Jesus began to do and say 
we have, he has already talked about those. Luke is summing up part one. And now we're preparing for part two, two, what Jesus will continue to do and say. And there Jesus is, but Luke has already given us a, a, um, a narrative of the ascension of Jesus at the end of his gospel. So now he's going to do it again. But one of the things that's really interesting that he does first, before he describes Jesus' ascension, is that he has, um, he has the, the disciples ask, we hear that the, one of the things that the disciples did, which was that they asked Jesus about the kingdom of God in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is the wrong question. One of the commentators about this question says, there are many problems with this question as there are words in the question. It is the wrong question because it shows that they're still expecting something way too limited. They believe that God's purpose in Jesus' coming, in Jesus being the Messiah, they believe that God's purpose is to restore the political, geopolitical nation of Israel to ascendancy. They want to bring the glory days back, the days of David and Solomon, when Israel, for a very short blip in time, was actually a world power that could contend with other world powers. That is not God's purpose. That is not God's plan within salvation history, and his plan is so much bigger. And so what's so interesting is that Jesus, you know when someone asks you the wrong question, and you can't even begin to explain why it's the wrong question because they don't have enough knowledge yet to realize why this is the wrong question. Well, Jesus, he doesn't even answer their question, does he? He just says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's not, he, he, they don't know what is about to hit them. When the Holy Spirit comes down, they are going to gain so much more insight into um, what Jesus' purpose was during his life and through his death and resurrection and ascension. They will understand. There will be these big aha moments with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see that in the way that they start to preach and teach both um, Peter and Paul and Stephen, the deacon. It's really interesting. We're going to see a transformation in these disciples. And so there they are. They're huddled in the upper room. They're still a little scared. They don't know what to do, but they know that they've got to choose another apostle, right? Because Judas, um, betrayed in betraying Jesus, well, he's dead at this point in the story, but in betraying Jesus, he showed himself to not be a true apostle, right? And so they say, well, we've got it. For some reason, 12 is important. Any idea why 12 is important? Yeah, Carol. Yeah, there are 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of Jacob for the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the new Israel, the new Israel constituted through faith in Jesus Christ. We are the new Israel because we believe in Jesus Christ. And the new Israel is not a geopolitical kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom of heaven could be described as anywhere where Jesus is proclaimed as Lord. So right here in this room, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. This is a little bitty corner of the kingdom of God. Um, so as they're recognizing, they do have some understanding about this kingdom. They understand, well, we really need to, to put someone in um, the place that was held by Judas. In his office is even the word that said. And how do they pick the new apostle? They draw lots. Do you remember in the Old Testament how they would make decisions, how the prophets and priests and kings would make decisions? 
The kings would go. Do you want to take it? Oh, I was going to say the high priest, they had the Urim and the Thummim. Oh, yeah. They, they tossed the dice. Good memory. Great, Carol. They tossed the dice in the breastplate of the high priest. There was built into the breastplate these stones. And when you read the Torah, when you read um, the first five books of the Old Testament, it, it, they talk about it. It's very baffling. And then in the day of the prophets and the judges, they still use these things. And they were, um, they were basically like dice. They were many-sided stones that they would take out and roll. Basically, they would cast the umum and thurum and umum. Is that right? Am I doing that right? Yeah, you well, got yeah, it. I've you got, got it. urim and thum. Oh, well, I messed it up for you. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, they would cast them, and they believed that whatever the stone said, that's what God wanted them to do, and so they would do that. And so what, what Luke is showing us is that decision-making at this time, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they still had to rely on Old Testament means for decision-making, for discerning the will of God. And that's going to change with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about more, of that, more about that in coming weeks. Um, which, so that's kind of cool to see. It's still, it's still, um, they still have the old way of doing things. They still also don't really get what Jesus' purpose was for. But they will. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, they will. Um, but there's something in this. While they're there, they are together. They're unified in prayer, which is a really neat word in Acts 1.14. That unification in prayer is a sign of um, that faith in Jesus Christ, that shared faith in Jesus Christ. And that's something that we still strive for today, isn't it? That peace among Christians, which is really hard to find. It's, but it's beautiful to see it in the Acts of the Apostles, and we're going to hear it again and again. It's a theme all throughout the Acts of the Apostles that those first Christians were unified even in the midst of um, disagreements, um, even in the midst of, um, of a new influx of people that were very different from the people that had started the church, that were a, the first part of the church. So that togetherness is important, that unity. Um, they've asked the wrong question. They're going to hear the answer when they're going to understand more when the Holy Spirit comes about. But in the choosing, before they cast lots for Matthias, there's something about the way they choose him that is characteristic of the way that they themselves were chosen. And I'm just going to outline these just for you really quickly. I'm going to erase this. Sorry. Um, but in verses um, 1 through 3, really, we hear about how these first apostles, um, the 11 and 12 with Judas, um, but how they were chosen, and they were chosen by Jesus. So the 12, remember, in the Gospels were chosen by Jesus. So Jesus chooses, let's see. I should do it this way. Apostles? How? How are apostles um, designated? Well, Jesus chooses them. And then we also see that Jesus shows himself to them. And specifically for the early church, um, to be an apostle of the early church was a specific office. And it could only be designated to ones who had witnessed and seen and encountered the raised Jesus. Jesus raised from the dead. But they also say for this, for this 12, for one to complete the 12, they choose someone who had been there for all of Jesus' ministry. Um, this is what Peter says. 
um, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Jesus shows himself to his apostles, and specifically those first apostles, those um, pillars of the church with that office, they um, had to have witnessed Jesus' bodily resurrection. Okay, then Jesus also commands and commissions them. And he commands and commissions them to be witnesses of his resurrection. And we hear that in Peter's words about Matthias. He must become with us a witness to Jesus' resurrection. And that witness is just like in a law court, bearing testimony, you know, saying, I, Deborah, promise to tell the whole truth, the whole truth about Jesus Christ. And we do this when we proclaim Jesus as Lord. Um, and we can proclaim Jesus as Lord through words, um, in, in, the way we, in the way we acknowledge him before others, or we can also do it through deeds whether it's as simple as wearing a cross and identifying ourselves um, with Jesus by wearing a cross, or um, also in our deeds, in the way we live around, uh, with those around us. The way we love those around us bears testimony to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Um, so Jesus commands and commissions his apostles to bear witness to him, even to the ends of the earth, and there's a quick verse at the end of Luke's gospel where he's also commissioning um, the 11 there. And he says in chapter 24, verse 30, 47, you don't, have to, um, you don't have to turn to it. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. We are witnesses to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That is from Luke. I'm writing it down now. Sorry, Mankate. 24, and that was 46 through 48. So these are marks of an apostle. The final thing for these first apostles is that Jesus promises them his Holy Spirit. And we see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Oops. Does someone want to read Acts 1, verse 4, if you have it in front of you? That's great. Yep, so Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit to his apostles. And the Holy Spirit fell on his apostles in a unique way. And yet the Holy Spirit is available to all of us who believe in Jesus. And so while we look at how do people become apostles, how does Jesus, um, how is Matthias qualified to be an apostle? Well, Jesus chooses them. And with Matthias, they said, you know, Jesus chose Matthias through the drawing of lots because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. 
Jesus shows himself to his apostles. Jesus showed himself to his 12 apostles in his life, in his death, and then, of course, by revealing himself to them after his resurrection. Jesus commands and commissions his apostles, go and proclaim my name, preach about repentance and the forgiveness of sins that's available through faith in Jesus Christ to all those to whom you encounter. And then the fourth thing is the most important thing. And this is what we see throughout the Acts of the Apostles, that all of these others, this command and this commission to be a light to those around us, to proclaim Jesus' name, to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins, this is not something we can do on our own. And we see this with the first apostles. They're hanging out in the upper room, still kind of scared, waiting around. They don't know what's next. They don't even understand what the kingdom of God is. They need the Holy Spirit. They need Jesus' own spirit present in them and present in their midst as the body of Christ to be able to empower them to do the work that God has called them to do. And that's one of the things that we talk about in our, in our communion prayer, our post-communion prayer. We ask that the Lord would give us the grace to walk in the things that he has prepared for us to do so that we just walk into them. And that's true that in our, own, in our own strength, in our own striving, we cannot fulfill this command and this commission of Jesus Christ. But God is gracious to us, and the same grace that God imparts to us through Jesus' death and resurrection that brings us forgiveness of sins and healing, joy, and transformation, it's that same grace that is imparted to us through his Holy Spirit so that we might be empowered by his grace to be able to open our mouths even when we're afraid of what other people might think, to be able to love others even when we really don't like them, um, to be able to serve those who have even wronged us, this is something that only God can do in and through us. And so just like those first apostles, we need God's own Holy Spirit to live the life of faith in Jesus Christ. And God is gracious, and he delights to give us his Holy Spirit. So we, we wait on him just like those first apostles waited we wait for his holy spirit we invite his holy spirit into our midst and we wait for jesus's return so i put a little quote about jesus's return that he will come um, and that um, he will gather his whole church into one at the end of all time and that in the meantime our goal is the same goal that jesus says in acts chapter 1 verse 8 He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this one verse could be seen as being like a table of contents for the whole book of Acts, because we're going to see that through Paul, the word is going to go even to Rome, the capital of the known world, the end of the earth. God is faithful to his promises um, to them and then also to us today. So let's pray. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for dying, for rising, for ascending and then sending your Holy Spirit. And so we ask now today that you would give us grace um, by the power of your Holy Spirit to walk out our faith in you. Give us, um, increase our faith in you. We believe, help our unbelief. Um, Give us courage as we go out from here to face whatever we face today and in this next week. Um, And give us a sense of your own abiding presence, your own spirit with us, empowering us, showering us with love, giving us courage and great hope. So we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.